is this racist violence? What is this racist violence meant to do? What is its effect on the community? People who look like me in particular, that violence is invisible. That violence was there to give us something, to give us land or or space or uh, the contentment of not seeing uh, people who don't look like us um, and who, as Dr. Rodriguez says, carry that difference with them visibly. It makes us uncomfortable because it makes us see our own privilege more easily. This is Southern Futures, and I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with the Center for the Study of the American South. Today's podcast topic is not an easy one to discuss, lynching. So why do we need to talk about something so violent and ugly in our nation's past? We have two guests on our podcast to tell us why the history of lynching has ramifications today for all of us. Annette Rodriguez is an assistant professor in the UNC Department of American Studies. She looks at the visual culture as an important piece of understanding what's at work. Seth Koch is the director of the Southern Oral History Program in our Center for the Study of the American South and associate professor in the Department of American Studies. Seth uses digital tools to examine lynching in North Carolina. We're going to talk about his student-driven digital project, A Red Record, shortly. So Annette and Seth, thank you for being here with us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. As a student of public history, I would say lynching is the most unsettling topic and visually disturbing practice that I've seen in my studies. But um, how do you approach this topic in class when it is so difficult? One of the things that's really important for me when I talk to students about lynching and and we study it is that uh, I look at uh, archival documents. So we really take the time to think about the testimonies often of women or of widows and survivors. And we look at their testimonies and we we think about the incredible courage they have that they present in in the cases I look at, the Mexican or American consulates. They they present it at a judge's house or the sheriff's office. And they're presenting to to ask for justice on behalf of of their loved ones who've been tortured or, or murdered or killed. And so we start there with students so they understand that that this is a, a community terror, that there may be a single victim of lynching, but it's meant to have a terroristic effect on a community. And so when I study it with students, I make sure that we think about the community. The focus on the community is so important and also so difficult because it's much easier just to focus on the victim and the story of how they were um, killed. And there is a really troubling, I think, tradition of scholars focusing on that violence in ways that just seem really purient, just they're there to watch along with the mob. And that's, that's a problem. And so, you know, what we try to do is situate our students in understanding the communities that these incidents took place in, understanding the context of the incidents. And like Dr. Rodriguez said, understanding that this is about trauma and terror. And so what I try to do in my class is draw my students into being intentional about not participating in the same kinds of enjoyments that the mob participated in. So we don't actually look at photos of uh, the victims of lynching because those photos were used as weapons of terror. We do read the messages on the backs of postcards that were sent with lynching images so people can understand what the mindset was of some of the people who were in attendance. But by trying to turn students away from those visual elements, that's not to lessen their their revulsion. That's to help them understand that lynchings 
have a residence today and they can choose to sort of take a position in how they understand and talk about them. You don't look at the visuals of the victims, but do you look at visuals of the spectators? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. And those images, which are in wide circulation, are hugely troubling in how familiar the faces can be and the fact that the crowds are intergenerational, they're children, they're elders. Um, they're not just groups of middle-aged angry men. Um, there are people who are dressed up as if they're going out for an ad in the town. There are people whose faces are illuminated by electric lights. Looking at them helps us understand how modern and communal lynchings were or could be. I think for me, Seth and Annette, I've seen some of those photographs myself and I thought what the, the most frightening thing for me was seeing the sort of almost glee or joy that you could see on the faces of spectators, um, almost as if they were at a, a spectacle. So I think studying this topic takes a lot of fortitude. Why, for the two of you, does this topic hold interest? Why do you think it's so important to to study? How did you become interested in this? For me, it was a it was an interesting um, three way that that sometimes happens with scholarship, which is. I was studying migration and immigration, and I bumped into this footnote in Kerry McWilliams, um, North from Mexico, and he says something like, um, as many Mexican people were lynched as African Americans in the South, he doesn't give you where that comes from, right? It's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a site without a site. And so I, I started off with this idea of recovery and, and thinking about, you know, it, could I prove this number? Could I examine the lynchings of Mexicans and, and, and see if that they were that wide in scope? My project changed because it, it turns out that this is actually was a, a ubiquitous public practice, and particularly um, at the turn of the 20th century in, in what we now call the Southwest in Texas. So, what changed about my project is that rather than collecting a, a sort of catalog and an index of, of, of victims, I started thinking about, well, what's the function of this violence? And this helps me understand and helps my students understand the relevance of public violence today, which is to say, you know, when we were talking about the photographs and the postcards, these are, these are public performances that are meant to be seen. They're, they're not hidden. And they're meant to be, be seen because they have that, that terroristic effect. And so when I'm thinking about public violence that's meant to be seen, I can think about how public violence functions. And it helps us think through things like contemporary hate crimes. It helps us think through things like uh, police violence. It helps me understand uh, the violence against children in INS detention that has been photographed and not photographed by, by journalists who have snuck in, but, but photographs taken by um, the Border Patrol and the INS that have been circulated because they want that same effect, right? You're not welcome here. Don't come here. So that, to me, is why studying public violence like lynching has real resonance. And I should say that um, your book project is Inventing the Mexican, the Visual Culture of Lynching at the Turn of the 20th Century. Is, is that right? That's right, yes. And so it, it's, 
showing us the connections today, but also revealing the nature of public violence. And Seth, your book, Lethal State, connects the state's death penalty history and lynching. Well, the book itself is a history of lynching um, in North Carolina between the end of the Civil War and the 1960s, 70s. And I think one of the more important parts of it, uh, (laughs) not to say that it's in and of itself important, but it is more important than perhaps some other parts, is just, you know, me just sharing my argument, which is that lynching and the death penalty are much more closely related than people have acknowledged, um, that in fact, they're really part of the same system and should we should not be turning ourselves in circles trying to figure out language that differentiates the death penalty from lynching with a sophisticated with an adequate degree of sophistication we should be figuring out how closely intertwined they were and like dr reggie was saying lynching is a system of enforcement of racial caste system and the death penalty lynching is part of that. The death penalty is part of it, just like all of the many other styles of enforcement we have are, are, are part of it too. And so lynching exists on a spectrum that the death penalty is also on. But also I think it's important to, to point out that people who were part of these mobs, um, they understood very much that what they were doing was an argument for the place of violence against non-white people in a modern society. And what they were saying was that we insist that as we create this modern society, Um, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and beyond, we insist that violence against non-white people. And in the South, we're often talking about African-Americans in the Southwest and the West against um, Latinx and others, against migrants, um, against immigrants, against Jews, that we insist on the place of violence against these people as part of our political system, as part of our social system, as part of our culture, and as part of our legal system. And it's really hard to understand why lynchings as we knew them in the past seemed to dwindle in the 1940s. But I think it's arguable that they began to dwindle because the mob understood that American governments were acceding to their request. That the government said, increasingly, we will not tolerate you committing this violence in the spectacular and public way that you want to, but we will integrate that violence in more subtle ways into the governments that we're building. And sometimes that violence was a death penalty that was almost exclusively used against African-American people with white victims. But perhaps more often it was about allowing white people to police the behavior of black people in ways that don't show up in newspapers, of neglecting the public health of non-white communities and poor communities, of excluding non-white people from owning homes in certain neighborhoods, of educating non-white children poorly, of incarcerating non-white people at disproportionate rates. So it's all part of a much bigger system. And I suppose that's that's one of the things that shows up in the book. I mean, the other interesting thing about lynching that that becomes important as, as we do this kind of work is that there's no agreed upon definition and this is why, as I was doing the work, um, I really started thinking about, okay, what's the choreography of the public act? And and as, as Dr. Koch is saying, we have these moments where um, people gather, where there's an accusation, where there's photography or filming. And so there's a sort of choreography that happens um, that, that we can identify. We can identify that more precisely maybe than a definition and the other thing is we, we think about the function, right, that, that, that it's always public, always meant to be seen, and, and there is a function. And, and so, you know, lynching is a, a show of force. And so it, it is an important way to rethink phenomena we're seeing today.
This is Southern Futures, and our guests are both professors in the UNC Department of American Studies, Annette Rodriguez, and Seth Koch, who is also director of the Southern Oral History Program. Annette and Seth, this year, anti-lynching crusader and pioneering journalist Ida B. Wells was honored with a Pulitzer Prize posthumously. Uh, Her work exposed and documented lynching throughout the United States at her own personal risk. Ida B. Wells was a journalist who was documenting lynchings as they were happening. And she was doing so at considerable personal risk. And and part of the reason why she did so was because she lost friends to lynching. So this was something that was very close to her. And she she was a, well, I believe she was a Memphian, at least she lived in Memphis um, when she began doing this work, um, is basically driven from Memphis to Chicago and then ended up spending time out of the country as well. Because, you know, like a lot of Black public intellectuals over the course of a hundred plus years, um, she was not made to feel welcome in the United States. More than that, that's a that's a <laughs> ludicrous understatement. Um, she was her her life was under threat. Um, she was at real risk of being assassinated because she was speaking truth to power about the role of lynchings. And and this comes back to what Dr. Roger Goods was saying at the begin beginning of our conversation, is that at a time when the white press was routinely reporting lynchings as being a response to crime, or um, as justified by the behavior of the person who did it, or as justified more broadly by the behavior of non-white people generally, with the general line being something like, if you can't control your people, we will need to do it for you. This was a time when black journalists, Ida B. Wells, Barnett, perhaps the most prominent among them, were forced to editorialize about how lynching was not, in fact, a legitimate response to real crimes, um, that it was part of the system, that it was something much bigger. It was about economic displacement. It was about continuing to fight the Civil War. Um, after the war was over, it was about the efforts to re-enslave and dominate people who had been enslaved, African-Americans and then um, also other non-whites. So she was making an argument that um, I think, if we look back, was pretty clear to a lot of Black observers or readers of the Black press, but was being obscured and papered over even by white institutions that were ostensibly anti-lynching, like the News and Observer. The News and Observer would have an editorial, you know, on page four saying, you know, what a horrible barbaric practice. We should really stop this. But the best way to stop it would be if black leaders in their communities would get black people under control. So really, in a weird way, using their opposition to lynching as a way to scold and try to control and dominate and encourage, as Dr. Rodriguez was saying, self-police. Ida B. Wells makes so clear so early on, and, and it's something that, that we need to follow. We need to follow this model, but she makes it very clear that it's important to decouple lynching from the logic of crime and punishment. She makes it very clear that often there's, there's these pretexts, there's these lies, there's these fictions of why somebody might you know, deserve to be slowly tortured, to be killed, And she very early on says, this is not what lynching is. It's not crime and punishment. And one of the earliest cases that she spends time with is is the case in in 1892, I believe, of of the People's Grocery um, lynching. And this was a co-op. So it's a co-op of Black owners who are becoming more prominent in the community. And so this lynching is very much about removing their property, and removing their prominence, and removing these men from the community. And so, so early on, Ida B. Wells is is telling us, let's take this out of this discussion of of legal and and, and crime and punishment. 
That is so important now because you think about, for instance, a case many people are familiar with, the case of, of the lynching of Emmett Till, who was a child. And for decades, we have spent time on the guilt or innocence of Emmett Till. And most recently, the woman who accused him of, of whistling or, or flirting with her, she recanted her testimony. And so it was already clear that the killing of Emmett Till was not about crime and punishment and made even more clear when she recants her testimony. But you think about the way that the logic of the lyncher took our focus away from, from the questions like, is this racist violence? What is this racist violence meant to do? What is its effect on the community? And instead, we're spending this time talking about guilt and innocence. The other thing, I, I use the word invention in the, the title of my book because lynching invents all these fictional characters of history, like the character of the vigilante and the character of the extra-legal vigilante in particular. And, you know, very often lynchings are, are, are being accomplished with the help of the state and certainly with the permission of the state. So this, this invention of, of the extra-legal vigilante is another logic of the lyncher that, that we have to be really careful about not adopting. I, I feel compelled to add a couple of sort of circular and confusing responses as well, which is, first of all, I mean, as Dr. Rodriguez is gesturing to, I mean, the whole idea of what even constitutes a crime particularly in the American South after the Civil War, is just entirely tied up with, with racism. So there's really no way we can understand anything that's, that's criminal or criminal adjacent without understanding that often it's only criminal either when or because a Black person did it in, in, in the American South. And so we, we've built our criminal legal system on racism, and we did it deliberately. <laughs> this isn't, you know, this is, I'm not some communist indoctrinator scholar circling around to try to reimagine our past. You know, this is, they said it out loud when they were doing it, and they wrote race into the laws they were doing it. Lynette, your work focuses on the border in Texas. How do we connect that with lynching in the South? Texas was one of the first war profiteers, continuing to sell munitions and uh, cotton and uniforms to other places in the Confederacy. And of course, uh, Texas is where we get uh, the holiday Juneteenth because they continued to enslave Black peoples even after Black peoples emancipated themselves by joining the Union um, and after the Emancipation Proclamation. So Texas is very deeply a part of, of this Southernness that happens uh, before and after the Civil War. Many of the migrants into the Southwest and into the border areas come from the South. So you have folks moving into what we now call Utah or what we now call Arizona or what we now call Southern California. Those folks are coming from Kentucky. Those folks are coming from Tennessee. And so, so their imaginations, their social imaginations are moving with them. You know, this becomes so important when we think about citizenship and belonging. So there's this inversion of history that happens in the Southwest and in Texas, where you have immigrants and migrants moving West, and they're positioning the Native people who are already there, 
They're not moving into an empty space, but they're positioning the native peoples there and the Mexican and Mexican-American peoples there as the invaders. And so there's this amazing inversion of history that happens that continues to this day. And so just the fact that when we talk about, for instance, the Alamo, we're talking about Coahuila and we're talking about a Mexican mission, but people talk about this as Texas, that inversion becomes really important. It's the same kind of inversion that happens with lynching, where when we look at at a photograph of, of, of a person who has been lynched and we look at um, the lynchers around them, somehow we've been taught and conditioned to think of the person who's been murdered as, as the criminal, as the wrongdoer. And in fact, the, the wrongdoers are surrounding that person. There was also a sort of absorption of this idea of Southernness from the West and the Northeast and the Midwest, right? And people identifying what they see as Southern and imagining their own place in it. And I guess that often is just simply represented by flying a Confederate flag or naming a school after a Confederate general. In classrooms with undergraduate students, the idea is to invest them in the fact that these incidents took place in places that they might have passed through or are familiar with, or maybe in their hometowns or in the hometowns of their peers. But what we're doing is we are working with fairly newly available sources, digitized newspapers and digitized public records, including death certificates and other documents, to gather as much information we can about people who died at the hands of lynch mobs, and then to make that information Um, as available as possible, and then to geolocate it, to identify where these incidents took place. But for now, it remains a teaching tool um, and a learning tool. And I think one of the best things about it is that it's, um, we we work with the wonderful people at Carolina K-12 here on UNC's campus to produce um, curricula for middle and high school students to learn about this. Because as a high school student in North Carolina, I definitely did not learn about lynching. And so this is a small way I can sort of repair my own experience. It takes the the historian's problem of, of huge data sets and it makes it readable, it makes it accessible, it makes it searchable. People can look, as, as you were saying, in areas they're interested in particular or dates they're interested in particular. And so just the moment of students who are part of the project and then folks who are accessing the project becoming tactily involved in what the project is doing and understanding that. It's, it's such a different experience than, than reading a book or an article. And I know that when students look at it, they're often surprised and alarmed. And, and they start to think about what it means to carry a sense of vulnerability on your body And those are such important moments for us to think about as we encounter people different from us today, as we encounter one another, is what it means for us to carry our unbelonging or what it means for us to carry privilege or what it means for us to negotiate a world uh, feeling vulnerable. And when they can attach that embodiedness by looking at this project It's incredibly powerful. To experience this virtual project, A Red Record, visit lynching.web.unc.edu.
This is the Southern Futures Reading Corner, and we asked both of you to share a favorite piece of writing with us and tell us why you chose it. So, Annette, I'm going to start with you. What are you sharing with us today? And tell us why. So I, I really wanted to share a, a piece called Makeshifting Black Women and Resilient Creativity in the Rural South. And this is written by uh, Kimber Thomas. It's available in the Southern Culture Spring 2020 issue. It's available online, but I'll tell you, it's also part of a gorgeous print copy. So I recommend um, the graphics of, of this essay, this article are gorgeous. So Kimber does oral histories in Mississippi and she coins this theory of makeshifting to name the agency of black women. And I think it's a tremendous theoretical contribution to think about the full lives of marginalized people. It's kind of a, a solve for what we've been discussing. Um, but, but it's also a lovely portrait of, of these women and, and of this specific place. So she highlights the resilience and the beauty and, and the full creative lives of, of Black women in the South. I chose it because my work attempts to highlight women very often uh, survivors in communities where there has been a lynching. But when I when I read this piece, I thought, oh, you know, when I grow up, I hope I write something with this thick and this real of a description and, and this complex. So so what I'll do is I'll I'll just read a couple of of small bits from makeshifting and and really encourage everyone to to read the entire thing. So this is by Kimber Thomas. Mamie Barnes was the first black woman to own land at the crossroads. Her lot was right below the four-way stop, down the fork and to the left, directly in the sun, in God's spotlight. Her neat white shotgun house had a white wooden screen door that led to a screened-in porch and a white wooden porch screen, the perfect prelude to the inside, and all around us was beauty pink roses and petunias, ripened okra, purple eggplant, collards and cucumbers, stems crisscrossing like braided hair. And after this beautiful description, Kimber writes, my interviews examine how makeshifting includes black women's logical, material, and temporary responses to discrimination, oppression, racism, or lack. Makeshifting requires patching and piercing and also requires black women to view objects as multifunctional. That is, objects meant for one domain will almost always overlap with or be utilized for another. It's time-consuming, an arduous, laborious practice that requires black women, especially, to imagine, to conceptualize, and to create again and again but it's also provisional, meaning that though it provides temporary remediation to forces of injustice and constraint, it can never permanently erase them. Mamie and the other black women at the crossroads during Jim Crow lived under the constant threat of white vigilante violence, but they were bonded by the confines of race, place, and gender. Many of these black women still live at the crossroads they never migrated, they survived Jim Crow and segregation, and they do not own more than the lots on which they live, but they found ways of making, doing, and being, and have made their lives significantly meaningful through these acts. 
and they live on to tell the stories of how they made a way out of no way, or in their case, made do. This makeshifting is at the core of these women's experiences, and it demonstrates how their demands for racial equality were always linked to their material circumstances. Obviously, that really resonates and hits home with me. Annette, thank you for reading that. Uh, For our audience, if you are interested in reading more of that essay, Makeshifting, visit southerncultures.org and do a search for Makeshifting. Seth, what are you reading for us today? And tell us why you uh, chose this particular selection. Uh, I I made a sort of classic white guy professor choice, which is um, Dostoevsky's notes from Underground. I chose it because it was something that made an impression on me when I was, I think, an adolescent, fancying myself very smart and daring in my thinking, which of course is the most conventional possible way of thinking as, you know, like a a 17 year old white kid in the suburbs. But um, I like the, I like the book because it expresses this essential pessimism that is, I think, very (laughs) appropriate at this moment, but it also sort of finds this odd glee in self-loathing and in doing so is liberating um, because if if one can be so miserable and self-obsessed as the narrator is in this book, then one can be not miserable by means of being not self-obsessed. So hopefully um, there's a, there's a productive inversion, but um, this is just from the beginning of the, um, the novella when the narrator is is sort of describing his efforts to transform himself. I couldn't manage to make myself nasty or for that matter, friendly, crooked or honest, a hero or an insect. Now I'm living out my life in a corner, trying to console myself with the stupid useless excuse that an intelligent man cannot turn him, cannot turn himself into anything, that only a fool can make anything he wants of himself. It's true that an intelligent man of the 19th century is bound to be a spineless creature when the man of character, the man of action is, in the most cases, of limited intelligence. This is my conviction at the age of 40. I'm 40 now and 40 years is a whole life. 40 is deep old age. It's indecent, vulgar, and immoral to live beyond 40. Who lives beyond 40? Answer me honestly. Or let me tell you then, fools and good-for-nothings. I'll repeat that to the face of any of those venerable patriarchs, those respected grayheads, for the whole world to hear. And I have a right to say it, for I'll live to be 60. I'll live to be 70. I'll live to be 80. Wait, give me a chance to catch my breath. How do each of you reimagine the American South, uh, personally and or professionally? I think the way that we reimagine the American South is with the project that um, Dr. Rodriguez is and has been working on with the broader project of the Center for the Study of American South of the Southern Oral History Program of Southern Futures, which is that we continue to bring in more voices of more Southerners who have their personal stories to tell. And in every additional voice that we bring into the canon diversifies our canonical story of what Southerness is, complexifies it, makes it more rich and more nuanced, adds emotional range and depth, adds intellectual range and depth. And so I suppose it's a process of decolonization. I'm thinking about my students who we partnered this spring with an ESL class in Siler City that was at the community college, uh, English as a Second Language. And and we did something very simple. We acted as conversation partners. And we talked about everyday events with, with folks who were learning English. And our goal was to help bring up their confidence to, to speak with, with other English speakers. And what was important about this and, and how it makes me think of the future of the South is it, in these sort of simple everyday encounters the students here at UNC were meeting 
communities they didn't know about. They learned a whole lot about what it means to be a poultry worker in Siler City. And I started getting emails uh, after our break um, from students who were worried about the essential workers, who were worried about people in poultry farms, who were being exposed to the dangers of COVID-19, who were being infected at higher rates. And so in my vision of of the American South, I think about how we can all extend our understanding of belonging and unbelonging and, and honor these relationships with people unlike ourselves and think about how to come into encounter with one another, recognizing inequality so that we can ally to undo these inequalities. Annette, thank you, of course, for being here. Seth, thank you for being here. But Seth, we're wishing you a lot of luck in your new role as director of the Southern Oral History Program in the Center for the Study of the American South. And we're so excited to have you in that in that role. So to our listeners, we also say thank you for your time today. And we ask you to join us for our next episode. For executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry, associate producer, Ellie Little, and sound editor, Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.